We're reading from 2 Chronicles, chapter 36. And the people of the land took Jehoahaz, son of Josiah, and made him king in Jerusalem in place of his father. Jehoahaz was 23 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem three months. The king of Egypt dethroned him in Jerusalem and imposed on Judah a levy of a hundred talents of silver and a talent of gold. The king of Egypt made Eliakim, the brother of Jehoahaz, king over Judah and Jerusalem and changed Eliakim's name to Jehoiakim. But Necho took Eliakim's brother Jehoahaz and carried him off to Egypt. Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he became king and he reigned in Jerusalem 11 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord his God. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, attacked him and bound him with bronze shackles to take him to Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar also took to Babylon articles from the temple of the Lord and put them in his temple there. The other events of Jehoiakim's reign, the detestable things he did and all that was found against him, are written in the book of the kings of Israel and Judah, and Jehoiakim, his son, succeeded him as king. Jehoiakim was 18 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem three months and ten days. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord. In the spring, King Nebuchadnezzar sent for him and brought him to Babylon, together with articles of value from the temple of the Lord, and made Jehoiakim's uncle Zedekiah king over Judah and Jerusalem. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 11 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord his God, and did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet, who spoke the word of the Lord. He also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, who had made him take an oath in God's name. He became stiff-necked and hardened his heart and would not turn to the Lord, the God of Israel. Furthermore, all the leaders of the priests and the people became more and more unfaithful, following all the detestable practices of the nations and defiling the temple of the Lord, which he had consecrated in Jerusalem. The Lord the God of their fathers, sent word to them through his messengers again and again because he had pity on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked God's messengers, despised his words and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord was aroused against his people and there was no remedy. He brought up against them the king of the Babylonians who killed their young men with the sword in the sanctuary and spared neither young man nor young woman, old man or aged. God handed all of them over to Nebuchadnezzar. He carried to Babylon all the articles from the temple of God, both large and small, and the treasures of the Lord's temple and the treasures of the king and his officials. They set fire to God's temple and broke down the wall of Jerusalem. They burned all the palaces and destroyed everything of value there. He carried into exile to Babylon the remnant who escaped from the sword and they became servants to him and his sons until the kingdom of Persia came to power. The land enjoyed its Sabbath rests. All the time of its desolation it rested until the 70 years were completed in fulfilment of the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, 
the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and to put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any one of his people among you, may the Lord his God be with him and let him go up. Praise be to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the books of Chronicles. And we do pray now that uh, as we consider this last chapter, that uh, you would grant us uh, greater insight and understanding, that we would be humble of spirit, that we would learn, that we would change. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The wrath of the Lord was aroused against his people and there was no remedy. 2 Chronicles chapter 36 verse 16. No remedy. No way out. No more chances. No hope for that generation. Imagine that. I mean, earlier on in Chronicles, God had said uh, that if my people humble themselves and pray, then I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sin, I will heal their land. But those days are now over. That was the reality for God's people in this very last chapter of Chronicles. How did it come to this? We have spent 20 sermons since uh, May this year, uh, working our way through uh, the two books of Chronicles, 1 and 2 Chronicles. Uh, one book, really, just originally in two different scrolls. And as we've done so, we have uh, covered a very, um, a, a very expansive uh, view of, of um, biblical history. Uh, do you remember maybe the very first word in 1 Chronicles uh, was the word Adam? Uh, that's where it started. Uh, it, it commences with the very first man. Uh, and since then, there have been uh, plenty of very hard-to-pronounce Hebrew names that we've had to work through. We've had some easy-to-pronounce Hebrew names as well, haven't we? Like David. That's easy to pronounce. Uh, King David, uh, who, uh, to whom God promised that he would have a descendant who would sit on the throne of the kingdom of God forever. Uh, another easy name to pronounce is, is Solomon, King Solomon, who ruled during what was really the high watermark of Israel's history. But since then, it's, it's been a bit of a downhill slide uh, with the, uh, the breakup of the kingdom into the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah, with a, a succession of kings who preferred to worship false gods rather than the God who is true, uh, with, of course, some noticeable exceptions, um, like, for example, Hezekiah, or as we saw last week, uh, Josiah. But why has God given us these books of Chronicles? 
I mean, there's some <clears throat> interesting life lessons to be learnt uh, from the example of these kings, some bad life examples, some good life examples. But yet most of the material can actually be found in the books of 1 and 2 Kings. So why Chronicles? Why is it in God's Word? And why have we spent 20 Sundays on it? I think the key to that is found in the, the, the very last verse of Chronicles. Can I get you to open up your Bibles at that and to Chronicles 36 verse 23? Everyone got that? This is what King Cyrus of Persia says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any one of his people among you, may the Lord his God be with him and let him go up. This is a proclamation from a pagan king. King of Persia. And, and do you see what he's saying? He's saying that, the, that the, the Lord has given me all of the kingdoms of the earth and that the Lord, uh, that, that he, of all people, a pagan king, that he is going to build a temple for God in Jerusalem and he gives permission for God's people to go to Jerusalem to be involved in the building. Now what's this about? I mean, isn't there already a temple? Um, isn't that what Solomon built and was dedicated? And, and, and how does this help us to make sense of Chronicles? Well, let's take a look, shall we? Um, this final chapter of Chronicles is somewhat different to the chapters that have gone beforehand because in, uh, earlier in, in Chronicles, uh, one king or the, the life of the times of a singular king uh, could take up one chapter, two chapters, even more of uh, the writing, and yet now the pace dramatically speeds up. Four kings in 14 verses. King Jehoahaz, King Jehoiakim, King Jehoiachin, and lastly, King Zedekiah. It's as if the author is kind of racing towards the finishing line which of course he is. And in each of the first three kings, we see a hint of what that finish line is. For example, King Jehoahaz, uh, in verse 2, how long does his kingship last? Can anyone see? Three months. Three lousy months. Uh, Judah was, by this stage, a, a very depleted and, and a weak nation. And uh, in the power plays of the region at the time, Judah became uh, subject to the king of, uh, of Egypt, the, the pharaoh, who dethroned Jehoahaz. And what does it say that he did to him in verse 4? In verse 4... He carried him off to Egypt, where he lived in exile. The next king, uh, Jehoiakim, started out as a puppet of the Egyptians. And 
we see this because in, in verse 4, did you notice that the Egyptian king changed his name? That's a power thing, isn't it? You know, if I say to you that, well, I've decided that your name is now going to be whatever, I'm kind of telling you who's boss, aren't I? And, and this is what's happening here, that the king of Egypt is saying, uh, I am, you are subservient to me. He changed his name. Jehoiakim was an evil king. Evil, he, all of those reforms that we talked about last week under Josiah, remember that I said that uh, we must always uh, never take things for granted because we're only ever one generation away from apostasy. Well, that's what's happened here because uh, this king, Jehoiakim, he reversed the reforms of Josiah and he even introduced Egyptian worship uh, into the life of Judah. Now, it was during his reign that Babylon became the dominant regional power. And Jehoiakim became subject to the Babylonian king, King Nebuchadnezzar. But in 601 BC, Jehoiakim rebelled. The scholars and historians say that he might have felt a little bit emboldened because the Egyptians had just won a battle against the Babylonians in that, at that time and maybe thought he, now was his opportunity to rebel. But Nebuchadnezzar responded, as one might expect. Verse 6. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, attacked him and bound him with bronze shackles to take him to Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar also took to Babylon articles from the temple of the Lord and put them in his temple there. So we see here that Nebuchadnezzar helped himself, didn't he? Uh, to uh, the uh, precious items that uh, were contained in the temple. And that really is a bit of a start of a theme for Nebuchadnezzar uh, in successive raids upon Jerusalem. And by the way, it probably explains what happened to the Ark of the Covenant. The Raiders of the Lost Ark, well, it probably was taken back to Babylon. But he didn't just take things, did he? Uh, we know from other parts of the Bible that uh, it was in, in this particular uh, operation that he commenced the idea of taking people with him um, back to Babylon. In fact, it was uh, this operation that meant that Daniel, a young, young man by the name of Daniel, was taken into exile in Babylon. And we know more about Daniel from the book that bears his name. But here we see that he also took the king. And so, therefore, Jehoiakim is now in exile in Babylon. Um, verses 8 and 9. His son Jehoiachin was appointed by Nebuchadnezzar as the puppet king. And a, a few months later, actually three months and ten days later to be precise, uh, Nebuchadnezzar changed his mind. And he came and he took this king out and he stole more items from the temple and took Jehoiachin 
into exile in Babylon. So, you see the themes, don't you? Uh, Robbing God's temple and exiling the kings. Common theme uh, throughout. And this is a theme which continues in the reign of Judah's next king, King Zedekiah. Now, the question that I want to ask is, well, while all of this is going on, what is God doing? Uh, Where is God in all of this? God was actually speaking. Uh, God was speaking loud and clear uh, because this was a period of uh, of height, what I'd call heightened prophetic activity. Um, the, the prophets who lived either just before this period of time and prophesied into this period of time or lived during this period of time including, included prophets such as Isaiah, Ezekiel, uh, Jeremiah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah and of course, as I've already mentioned, Daniel as well. So this is a time of heightened prophetic activity. But in this chapter, the prophet Jeremiah is singled out. Now, you remember last week when uh, under jo- when Josiah was renovating the temple, when they discovered uh, the scroll, which uh, the scroll of the book of Moses, uh, probably Deuteronomy. Uh, when the book was read to the king. How did the king respond? How did he react? Do you remember? He tore his clothes, didn't he? He, t- he ripped his, his, his clothes and th- this was a, uh, a, which was a sign of, um, of, of despair. It was a sign of distress, of, of anguish and repentance. That's one way you can react to the word of God. Well, Jeremiah had some of his prophecy written down and read uh, to, to the king, read out to, actually it was to King Jehoiakim. And when King Jehoiakim heard the word of the prophet read to him, did he tear his clothes in anguish? No, no, no. He threw the scroll into a fire. He wasn't going to be someone who was going to wear sackcloth and ashes. He turned God's word into ashes. And King Zedekiah was worse than that. Verse 11. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king and he reigned in Jerusalem 11 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord his God and did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet who spoke the word of the Lord. He also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, who made him take an oath in God's name. He became stiff-necked and hardened his heart and would not turn to the Lord, the God of Israel. He didn't humble himself. He didn't humble himself before Jeremiah, the prophet, who spoke the word of God. Uh, In fact... Um, in the book of Jeremiah, in Jeremiah uh, chapters 36 through to 38, uh, we're told that uh, King Zedekiah had Jeremiah thrown into prison because Jeremiah just didn't itch where he's, didn't scratch where Zedekiah's ears were itching. 
There were plenty of false prophets around who would do exactly that. Um, Peace, peace, they would declare when actually there was no peace. Uh, Prophets who spoke very comforting words, everything's fine, the future's looking great. Whereas Jeremiah spoke boldly against the rich of Judah who were exploiting the poor. He spoke boldly about the utter disregard for God's God's law. Uh, He spoke boldly and plainly and quite frankly about idolatry, about uh, Judah's replacing of the Lord God with with false gods and idols. Uh, In fact, in Jeremiah chapter 2, he describes Israel's running after Baal as being, and I quote, like the lust of an animal in heat. That's hardly a comforting thought for the day kind of message, is it? So they threw him down a well to try to shut him up. And it's the same today. You know, religion will always be quite acceptable so long as it fits in well with the values of the world and avoids difficult topics, topics such as sin and judgment, repentance, even avoiding topics like God himself. Woe to you, said Jesus, when all men speak well of you. But the treatment of Jeremiah was just the end point of a long history of Israel's sin and of God's patience. And so, has God's patience run out? The question is, is this the end point for Israel? Verse 15. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent word to them through his messengers again and again, because he had pity on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked God's messengers, despised his words and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord was aroused against his people and there was no remedy. He brought up against them the king of the Babylonians who killed their young men with the sword in the sanctuary and spared neither young man nor young woman, old man or aged. God handed all of them over to Nebuchadnezzar and he carried to Babylon all the articles from the temple of the Lord, both large and small, and the treasures of God's temple and the treasures of the kings and the officials. They set fire to God's temple and broke down the wall of Jerusalem. They burnt all the palaces and destroyed everything of value there. Now, there were um, political reasons for what happened here. Uh, Zedekiah had rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar. But what happened next was the result of Israel's collective disobedience as a nation over hundreds of years. Because in verse 17, who is it who brought up the king of the Babylonians? was God. The Babylonians laid siege to the city of Jerusalem for two years. There's a 
strategy in doing that, in laying siege, if you lay siege to a city rather than just try a full-on attack, you end, up losing, you, you end up losing less men doing it that way. You trap the population, you cut off their supply of food and water, you starve them, and as the people died in the walls of Jerusalem from hunger and thirst, some we knew, no, uh, ate their own babies. That's the desperation. In 587 BC, the Babylonians finally broke through and as we see in the passage here, they killed indiscriminately. Young men, young women, the elderly, the sick, the, and they, they ransacked and they burnt to ashes the temple of God and the palaces and they raised the city to the ground. Those who were not slaughtered were taken as prisoners, taken across and exiled into Babylon, except some very poor farmers who were left behind just to till some of the land. And so the, the, um, the plundering of the temple now culminates in the destruction of the temple. The exile of the kings now culminates in the exile of everyone who survived the slaughter. Now, you might remember God's promises to Abraham. We've talked about them a lot, haven't we? The three things that God promised Abraham. He promised a people, a land, and a blessing. And as we've looked through uh, Chronicles, we've seen how that has uh, been fulfilled. Uh, for we've seen in Chronicles uh, that uh, during the time of Solomon that the the, the people of Israel were so numerous that they were as numerous as the sand on the seashore or the stars in the sky. They couldn't be counted. Uh, we saw under Solomon that the, uh, that the land had been possessed and the borders from the Euphrates River in the east through to the Nile River in the west. That, uh, and we've seen the blessing to, uh, to all nations that uh, the Queen of Sheba came up to Solomon and the people of the world came to Solomon to, to gain from his wisdom, to learn about life and to... And now it's gone. Abraham's descendants have been decimated. The land has been taken from them. And instead of blessing... People curse them. People travelling through look at Jerusalem destroyed and say, well, they're cursed, those people. And the Davidic king, far from the promised king ruling over an everlasting kingdom, is now a blind prisoner, having had his eyes plucked out just after the Babylonians executed his sons. So that would be his lasting memory. Now, this is the situation. And can you imagine if you were one of these Jews that's been taken as a prisoner into, into Babylon, how sad and how humbling this would be? The Babylonian exile is one of the most important events in the Old Testament. Indeed, in the Bible as a whole. It's, it is one of the most significant events. And for many, those who were taken into exile, 
it became a time of a profound reflection of, uh, of deep repentance, considering who they were, what they had done, how worthy was the judgment upon them. There were things which they had trusted in and become complacent about. They trusted that they would have the land. Some of them would say, well, we've got the temple of the Lord, we've got the temple of the Lord, we've got a covenant relationship with God, we've got the law of the Lord, we, we're okay. And yet now, God has stripped all of that away from them so that all they have left is God himself. Psalm 137. By the rivers of Babylon we lay down and wept as we remembered Zion. Not just the hill upon which Jerusalem and the temple were built, but everything which it represented. The presence of God. The forgiveness of sin and the everlasting covenant, the relationship, the love of God. Now, the voice of prophecy was most certainly one of judgment, but it was also one of hope during this period of prophetic uh, activity. Listen to the words of Jeremiah to the exiles. In Jeremiah chapter 29. So Jeremiah is still back in Jerusalem. This is when that group has, have gone out, uh, i.e. Daniel and others. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord's. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. Seventy years. That's, uh, that's really, it's the passing of one generation. That's what that represents. It's, it's a fresh start. So that as Chronicles comes to an end in verse 22, that time has now come. Uh, we sung in the song early on, the kids' song, the kingdoms come and kingdoms go, remember? Well, the Persians rose up and they conquered the Babylonians. So Persia was now the dominant power and the Persian policy with uh, the Babylonians, the Assyrians and Babylonians, their policy when they took over a place was to take people out and to repopulate with others. The Persian policy was to send people back so that King Cyrus now <clears throat> determines that the remnant of God's people should now return and start again. So just as Chronicles began with the first man, Adam, 
it finishes with a fresh start for God's people. Although uh, Chronicles was was written much later than the return from the exile, Chronicles was written about uh, in the 4th century BC. So he's writing to people who were the sixth generation of the people who'd returned back. But they needed to be reminded of who they are. They needed to be reminded of their identity as God's people. They needed to be reminded of those events which had led to the exile. They needed to be reminded of these things so that back in the land that they would know what it means to put God first. And the particular emphasis on the temple in 1 and 2 Chronicles uh, would be of great importance to those Jews that are living back in the land uh, with the new temple, which was not anywhere near as good as the temple of Solomon. But a fresh start means more than just returning to the land because what's needed is a new heart what's needed is a new spirit what's needed is a new and a a new covenant with god but ezekiel had some things to say about that listen to what god promised through ezekiel uh, to those in in exile in Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 24 and following, where God said, For I will take you out of the nations, I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all of your impurities and from all of your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and I'll give you a heart of flesh and I'll put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and to be careful to keep my laws. Then you will live in the land I gave your ancestors. You will be my people and I will be your God. See, it's saying, it's not just saying, look, you failed the first time, so how about if I take you back into the land and you can have a second crack at it and see how you go? It's not saying that, is it? This is something, it's, it's got to do with a new heart. It's got to do with a new spirit. It's got to do with God's, God's spirit living in God's people. Now, the prophet Isaiah, uh, he was prophesying during the time of Hezekiah. And you remember that because of the um, repentance uh, of Hezekiah that uh, God promised that uh, exile would take place but that it would be postponed, that Hezekiah would not see with his own eyes what was going to befall uh, Judah. Now in Isaiah chapter 40, Isaiah has just spoken to Hezekiah of this. So he's saying that an exile will happen. You personally won't experience it, but it will happen. But he also gave hope for the future. Isaiah 40. 
Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all of her sins. A voice of one calling, In the wilderness prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all people will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. It's a promise of a pathway being cleared in the desert. A pathway for God to save his people. But when you look at that, what you see that this is much more than just a picture of God's people trekking back across the desert from Babylon to get back to Jerusalem. That it is. But it is much more. In Luke chapter 3, as in other gospel narratives, this voice of one calling in the desert is John the Baptist, who came preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin, warning people to flee from the coming wrath of God and not to be complacent. And not to have false trust and false hope and not to say, well, I'm okay with God because Abraham's my father. I'm a descendant of Abraham. I'll be all... No. The axe is at the root of the tree, ready to chop it down to all those who do not bear fruit. You see, in the first century AD, and John the Baptist comes... In fulfilment of Isaiah chapter 40, it's, it's as if, although they're already back in the land, that they haven't learnt the lesson from the exile. Or that in a sense, they're actually still in the exile. For what is the only way back to God? John came as a voice in the desert to prepare the way for Jesus. Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the temple. Jesus is the temple. The very presence of God come to his people. Josiah celebrated the Passover. Jesus is the Passover. The lamb who was slain. The lamb whose blood covers all of our sins. The kings of Judah, they became puppets and prisoners. But by his resurrection, Jesus has become the, the king of the universe, the Lord of lords, the king who defeated that ancient foe, God's enemy and ours, Satan, the king who has secured our heavenly land. The king who, as Ezekiel promised, had sent God's Holy Spirit that we might have a new heart, a new spirit, 
a new relationship with God. The King who came to die for us. The King who sent His Spirit to change your heart and to change my heart. That we would be the true Israel. That we would be that which Israel was not. That, that we would be people who trust Him, love Him and live for Him all our days. And so ends Chronicles. Let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, we pray that with a f- new spirit and a new heart that we would be those who are repentant of sin, that we would be those who fear your wrath but who take refuge in the Passover lamb, Jesus. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.